Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is Erica Weeb. And I'm Lynn Fernandez. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at afterthought, that's one word, at ckuw.ca. Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of the conversation I'm having with economist uh, Fletcher Berger from the University of Manitoba. If you missed part one, I do urge you to listen to it because uh, there's some really important history and background information that is going to, I think, make part two um, that much more understandable and interesting for, for everybody. Um, but what we are doing is talking about, we're, we're going to move now into this piece that was written by Adam Tooze, who is a uh, an economic historian at Columbian University. And um, the background that we talked about earlier is, is explaining what neoliberalism is. And, and so I do urge you to, to, um, to give that a listen so you know what we're talking about. Uh, but we're going to, before we talk about Tuz's piece, which concentrates mostly on the economic crisis that we're going through because of COVID, um, he also wrote extensively about the 2008 financial crisis. And um, I know back then, uh, I don't know about you, Fletcher, but I naively thought that 2008 was going to bear um, the, all, all the problems with neoliberalism, and that might be what ended neoliberalism, but of course it didn't. Um, and Tooze notes that well as well. He, he says that the, the, the crisis brought on by the speculative free-for-all um, of the 2008 crisis, that caused central bank and, and governments to intervene in a way that, that drove a coach and horse through firmly held precepts about small governments and independent central, central banks, in his, in his words. And we saw after that, to a certain extent, the rebirth of Keynesian economic policy, which we talk about in part one. Um, and this happened long after Keynes was dead and, and economists had, had declared, well, Keynes is dead and so his ideas are dead and something happened. We, brought, we managed to bring back all his ideas and got, there was massive government intervention at that time and, and, and bailouts, right? There was massive government bailouts in, in potentially what even trillions of dollars that was spent to bail out the economy then. Um, so um, that... Some, for some reason, we, di we didn't learn the lesson then, despite all that. Why, why do you think we didn't learn the lesson at that point? Well, I think that for much of economics, and certainly for uh, uh, much of the economic policymakers, that the crisis, the financial crisis of 2008, and, uh, uh, and then the on ensuing recession that carried over into uh, 2009, uh, came as an enormous shock. I mean, it's famously mentioned that, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, uh, reportedly uh, asked their economic advisors, well, why didn't any of the economists predict this sort of thing? <laughs> um, and, uh, and of course, uh, heterodox economists mm. are saying, well, yeah, we did. You know, there, there were a lot of people sort of saying, look out, this is what's going to happen. But it's important to mention that they were sort of marginalized. Mm -hmm. uh, and they certainly, uh, in general, didn't have the ear 
of policymakers, and they really weren't controlling uh, or prominent or even a significant part of the training of the economists at both the undergraduate and the graduate level, exactly. or, and maybe especially at the graduate level. And so um, the events, uh, the cruel events uh, of 2008, um, really caught, uh, I'll say, uh, economists, economic policymakers, as well as much of the general public, completely by surprise. Even even central banks and the Fed in the States, like Greenspan, was completely absolutely uh, completely side sideswiped by this. Had no no idea that this could even happen. Right. right. And then what tended? I mean, as that crisis sort of developed, and I, I remember during the worst days in early October of two thousand eight, I, I there was a Friday, I was sitting at my computer and just watching the. The, the numbers just sort of collapse in financial markets. Mm. And I'm just wondering, wow. So even uh, the, the the severity and the suddenness of the crisis, even though uh, I was sort of aware that in, this could happen, to actually see it unfolding in real time in front of you was uh, you know, uh, extraordinary and uh, a bit of a scary, it was uh, very scary. Uh, uh, experience. Um, so uh, I, I think that... Uh, by late September, uh, especially with the collapse of Lehman Brothers now, but by late September 2008 and early uh, October 2008, I think it's probably fair to say that, uh, uh, financially speaking, it's almost like you're peering into the abyss. You're just sort of looking over the precipice there because it's just not quite clear where this is going to go. And so, uh, although uh, economic policymakers uh, can be, I think, legitimately criticized for not being well prepared, not listening to other voices. And we can talk about that maybe later as well. But the response was massive. And uh, and in general, uh, certainly in retrospect, you can sort of say, well, they moved pretty quickly to, make, to sort of suddenly uh, change their worldview and their view and their expressed view of what was proper for economic policy. Uh, before it was sort of managing and and being uh, uh, sort of pulling back to allow the free play of market forces, and now suddenly saying we cannot allow that at this moment. If we let the market forces play anymore, it could be a disaster for everyone. Right, and so Keynes came roaring back, really. So Keynes came roaring 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 back, but also Minsky to a certain extent mm -hmm. as well. I mean, Hyman Minsky was an American economist who kept saying. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, a series of essays back in the 1970s and 1980s, and one of them was titled, Can It Happen Again? And the it he was referring to was the, the big stock market the crash, crash yeah. of 1929, which mm. heralded in the, the Great Depression of the 1930s. And he's, he said, yes, yes, yes. And so there were these voices there. Um, and then suddenly, uh, in 2008, uh, people are sort of saying, well, there's something about Keynes, but maybe right away, to sort of uh, uh, find some way to stem this financial freefall, uh, we might have to pay some attention to what Minsky was saying. And Minsky was sort of a, a, a more uh, more of a post-Keynesian economist, a little closer to the radical, heterodox side. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the, there was space opened up to hear these different voices. And so with Minsky, well, Minsky is a post-Keynesian, which means that drawing on that tradition of Keynes and emphasizing that markets are potentially very fragile and potentially very vulnerable. And so much of economic training 
have been to look at conditions for stability or even assume stability in markets. Um, and uh, the, uh, the crisis of 2008 basically said, you can't proceed on that assumption. There's the, uh, what we're seeing in front of us are markets that not only are unstable, but are essentially collapsing or disintegrating mm -hmm. in front of us. And that involves massive intervention. And so it was, you know, looking back at it now, it was a dramatic uh, about face in terms of economic policy. And some have said that economics, is, when you boil it right down, is ultimately a pragmatic science. Uh, it's policy oriented. Well, in this case, this was the march of real events that forced uh, dramatic rethinking of a lot of economics and and certainly necessitated a big change in uh, the policy climate and the so sorts of policies that were uh, that were the result mm -hmm. the interesting uh, one of the interesting questions though is that okay we've had this sudden uh, massive adjustment in 2008 2009 uh, is that signaling let's say a new economic policy world and a new uh, a shift in uh, economic theory in, in a fundamental way and I think when we look back I think this, the answer is we saw some of that but far less than what we might have expected if if we were having this conversation back in 2009 right. 2010 that's right so um, so there was some change but I think looking back we would say uh, it was I'll say modest at mm. best. Yes, for sure. And and so this brings us then to, to 2020, COVID hits. And um, Tuz says, uh, what happened to the world economy when COVID hit was a, a crisis like no other. And this is, of course, because it, it wasn't an external forces necessarily that collapsed the, the economy. It, 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 it happened almost in a voluntary sense. Everybody had to stay home. You had to shut things down to prevent the, to prevent the pandemic um, from spreading. And, and so, you know, there were many fault lines laid bare, I think, when this happened. Uh, we saw horrible things happening in long-term care in healthcare, healthcare systems around the world were not prepared for this, certainly in Canada, certainly in Manitoba, we were not prepared, even less prepared in the United States. Um, there was massive unemployment. Um, and so Tuz is saying, suggesting that, that when we see this, once again, we should be waking up to the fact that there's some problems here with neoliberalism, that government actually does have a very strong role to play. And, and, you know, the, the response that we had in Canada was, I would, I would say, quite impressive, really. Um, um, we had uh, household income actually increase in 2020 as a result of government programs. The, the, the uh, uh, CERB payment that went out to people, income actually went up around in families in Canada, uh, which tells you, and this is his point, when government needs to spend money, when government needs to intervene, uh, it, it, it can do that. So, so this is, I think, what he's, he's saying, people are realizing this. So is this a shift away from, oh, there's never enough money, we can't do this, when all of a sudden, when it comes to keeping the economy going, clearly we can't do this. So this has led to also ideas like the Green New Deal coming forward again. And we talk about what, you know, the origin of that of that term with the New Deal in, in the States in the 1930s. 
and the idea also that climate change, which has played a role in, in potentially and why we have the pandemic in the first place and future pandemics, and um, the Green New Deal also would de would 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 encourage governments or would would see governments spending massively on new infrastructure to move away from our fossil dependent economy by and also extreme with uh, deal with extreme inequality which has been exacerbated by covid so the mantra has become build back better so this is where um uh twos kind of gives us the idea like okay is this going to happen but i don't know what things maybe start kind of falling apart from there because i don't think he's convinced that this is going to happen that this is going to be the end of neoliberalism i i think so too i mean it's, it's hard to uh, you know peer into the crystal ball to sort of see how mm -hmm. that's uh going to go uh uh, certainly, it's a little easier to peer, not unproblematic, but a little easier to, to look backwards yes. and sort of see what's happened in the past and, uh, and and what lessons we might be able to draw from that and use going forward. So uh, you, you mentioned a uh, very important development of Roosevelt in the New Deal. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was uh, in the United States in the 1930s when after that stock market crash in 1929, the 1930s was an unprecedented economic depression. It hit the United States, it hit Canada, it really devastated the Canadian prairies, but it was global, or to a large extent, glo global as, as well. And uh, once again, well, Roosevelt, a new administration in the United States, they won the 1932 election, and in 1933 started with a new deal and a whole range of different policies. Um, based in part, not so much that they had read Keynes, even though Roosevelt sort of met mm -hmm. Keynes, but didn't really, they didn't really connect, I would say, but just sort of a recognition that we have to do something and it's better to sort of just try whatever we need to try in order to um, deal with the situation. Some stuff will work really well, some might need uh, to be revised, some might not work at all, but we've got, we've just got to try it. Um, and he did, and it did help. Uh, I mean, it, it ameliorated the worst aspects of the Depression. And um, that combined then with the Second World War helped sort of push the economy out. And then the post-war economy was really characterized as a boom uh, economy. But what was, I think, also really important uh, in that is that although Roosevelt's policies, the experience of the Depression, and then when the war came and uh, the Second World War, the feeling was, well, never mind about deficits or anything, if we don't win the war, it's a moot point anyways. So we have to win the war, so we'll spend what we need to spend. And that involves all sorts of borrowing and massive deficits. Uh, and, and that's that's important because that's a, that's a part of the mantra of neoliberalism is, is not, not to go into debt, right? Exactly. Low taxation and no, and, and no deficit spending. So this is, this is where things have been blown apart as well because how much of a how much deficit spending has the federal government done because of covid and and such that happened also um during the depression so this is the other so those parallels are striking yes because uh the depression and the second world war was just felt well we have to take these policies we have to do the spending we have to mobilize our resources it's it's a it's a it's a crisis. It's an existential crisis. That's right. Similarly to uh, with the financial crisis in 2008 uh, and then now again uh, in 2020, 2021 with the COVID crisis. Well, if uh, if that 
I mean, if COVID just is allowed to uh, run uh, untrammeled through society, it's going to devastate uh, everything, including mm-hmm. the economy, and the economy will be a moot point. So right now, uh, the most important thing is, is do what's necessary to sort of support, uh, uh, get the resources and support people and businesses. So in a sense, there's that sort of similarity because it's a sort of a, a acute crisis situation. Right. But in in... Canada and the United States, for sure, after World War II, there was an enormous, and in fact, even before the war, back in 1937-38, there was an enormous pushback Mm -hmm. against these new sets of policies, Mm -hmm. uh, and a pushback really orchestrated by certain sectors of the business class. Exactly. And uh, and so there was an enormous struggle over what the shape of economic policy uh, and the the institutions of the economy would be. And what was crucial there was there was a powerful influence of uh, social progressive forces and organized labor. And so there was a change in sort of the balance of forces. And they had political power, which, um, uh, and, and so that mobilization of political power, in addition to the sort of demonstration effect that well these policies seem to work in the 30s and they seem to work in the 1940s to get us through that crisis that provided support for sort of a new set of policies that now we look back we sort of call Keynesian type of macro mm-hmm. and economic policies um, and the emergence of the middle class the, the, right. as a result of that the golden age of capitalism the age. Yes, and, yeah. and, and you know and Galbraith sort of referred to that because he was writing the, back in the 50s he had this notion of sort of countervailing power. That's right. So that there was still enormous power, concentrated power of big business and capital. But to some extent, that was offset by uh, some concentrated power of organized labor mm-hmm. and of the state. So you sort of had these sort of three pillars mm-hmm. uh, or these three supports of that particular economy. What one of the features of neoliberalism was, was that I mentioned before, it tilted the power uh, from... from um, uh, a more balanced way in the 50s and the 60s to much more in favor of capital and business. Mm-hmm. And now, when we've got this particular crisis, and especially the COVID crisis, there isn't the same degree of organized That's right. power the same on sort the of left back. and mm-hmm. of labor. So you don't have that countervailing, that countervailing power. Yeah. And therefore, the tendency, and we, I think we saw this very clearly in the crisis of 2008, the tendency for that pushback on the part of the power that is organized, aspects of the business class, for example, and of capital, doesn't meet with the same resistance. As, or, it, as it did. As it did. Yeah. And so, therefore, sort of going back to your point about um, what the future might like and what uh, be like mm-hmm. and what to suggest, it's, I'm a little bit less optimistic because you don't have that I'll say that organized, developed, countervailing power, or or just you know a prominent uh, political left uh, in in so many of these countries right now. Yeah, and, and I think also the other big element that he talks a lot about, and we don't have time to go into it in this discussion, but he he talks about the geopolitical issues as well. Um, most importantly, the rise of China, 
uh, as an economic superpower and, and the increasingly volatile situation in the United States where, where, where labor is even less, has, has lost more power uh, than, than in Canada, you know, and Trump possibly coming back even stronger and increased in a, you know, increasing poverty, increased um, uh, lack of, of opportunity for so many people um, in, many, in many countries. And he, he, he asks, or he notes that when Biden declares that America is back, he, he says we have to ask which America, like, you know, can we, can we ever go back to the way things used to be? I, 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 it seems to me like that mold is broken. And, and then he says back, you know, back to what? What does he mean by that? And I think that's really, all, you know, when you combine all of this thing and, and all of these aspects with, with what's happening geopolitically, what's happening with not having those contravailing forces that you talk about, um, I think he's telling us maybe not to get too excited about this idea that COVID has, has, has finally overcome neoliberalism. So I think we have to leave it here. So... So um, with maybe the, the, the last section of, of, of the program, there's countervailing forces to, um, I think there are a few countervailing forces in terms of economic thought, in terms of some of the theories that are out there. And, and one of them is, well, for example, we can even go back to, to, to what um, Keynes said in terms of this, all this fury over deficit spending and how terrible it is. Keynes famously said that anything we can actually do, we can afford. <laughs> and I find it hard to argue with that. Um, but then we have also the rise of new doctrines like the modern monetary theory would seem to back up that. So um, I'm intrigued by the new theory and, and, the, and the possibility that we don't necessarily have to worry so much about deficit spending as we thought. But could you give us a, a, just a, a sense of what that theory is about? Yes, uh, the, the uh, modern monetary theory, or MMT as it's mm -hmm. sometimes re referred to, uh, is really based on, on the notion that uh, deficits for, uh, I'll say for national governments, for countries, are not the same as deficits, say, for provinces or deficits that businesses or households might face. And the reason is, is that they've got the ability to print their own money. Now, this is a very circumscribed and very specific context. It has to be the case where you have a country that is sovereign and that has its own central bank and its own currency. Mm -hmm. So, it, so it would only so it would apply for Canada because we have the Canadian yeah. dollar, right? But, but for some not country, Europe, not Europe, right? It wouldn't apply mm -hmm. for Europe. It could apply uh, for some countries that aren't in Europe that aren't part of the European mm -hmm. monetary system. Yeah. But mm -hmm. if you are part of that then uh, unless you had a supranational organization in Europe. Um, that there is a European Central Bank. There is a European Central Bank, but so it's got monetary hmm. power, uh, but it doesn't have the fiscal power. It doesn't have the fiscal and, power. And since we're talking about deficits, that's referring to the fiscal power. Yes. So part of the crisis in Europe uh, uh, of the last decade or more has been fine, uh, trying to deal with the reality of a centralized bank monetary system and a decentralized fragmented mm -hmm. fiscal system with yes. all these national governments. Yes. And I would say they haven't solved that problem mm -hmm. yet. Uh, but for Canada, uh, it could work. Uh, we've got uh, a, a, a federal government and our central bank. We print our own money. So the, mon uh, the modern monetary uh, theory 
argues that if governments wish to take a program, uh, a, a new initiative that involves a range of spending, and, and if it doesn't uh, have revenue sources that can cover that spending right now, then the shortfall can be covered by the central bank by essentially printing money and using that money to finance those additional government expenditures. Mm -hmm. It's not a risk-free strategy uh, because you are putting more money or more liquidity into the Canadian financial system. And so that could potentially raise uh, dangers of uh, inflation, which is essentially just devaluating the uh, purchasing power of any particular dollar, for example. And it may also carry, especially for a country like Canada, uh, which we call as an open economy, which means that there's a lot of international trade, uh, uh, which is a big part of the Canadian economy, and a lot of international movements of capital, uh, Canadian dollars and, and international uh, currency flowing in and out of Canada, that if, uh, if there was a big increase, let's say, in printing of Canadian money, then there's always the possibility that people take the Canadian money, convert it to gold or U.S. Mm -hmm. dollars or something else, in which case you've got downward pressure on the exchange rate, which has a whole host of other economic implications. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's not a magic wand uh, in that sense that it will cure it. But what it does do is that it eases the budget, budget constraint, especially in the short term. And especially if you've got a situation where what Keynes would call there's unemployed or underemployed resources. So that if you've got um, uh, uh, workers and families that aren't working, uh, that you've got productive capacity that's not being utilized, then uh, you can use this, I'll say newly printed money to provide the impetus to mobilize those resources to get them to work, to do the sorts of things that need to be done, building up the healthcare system, uh, communications infrastructure, whatever the case might, might mm -hmm. happen to be. So you, um, so it, I'll say it broadens the range of possibilities, uh, but it'd be, I feel, um, overstating the case to say that uh, there's still no trade-offs involved. You have to sort of still be careful. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, it certainly is uh, enables us to sort of break the shackles of the sort of austerity-driven balanced budget mentality, which uh, really ruled for the previous uh, three decades. Right. So, I mean, we, we could almost say that, that, that this government response, I mean, given that now we are back, apparently back to full employment, some economists are saying, um, uh, we've got just as many job people working now as we did before COVID, um, and this, and, and, and there's been, you know, you had households that had their income actually increase during the worst part of the crisis. So, I mean, this is almost like a test for modern monetary theory because so much of the, also what happened was, was quantitative easing, this, this printing of money and, and putting it into, into the economic system. So is that, was that a bit of a test of whether the theory worked? I don't think it was a big enough test, at least in the Canadian context, because uh, a lot of the um, uh, of, of the Canadian financing was, uh, what, especially from the federal government, because that was the major player, mm -hmm. um, was still borrowed money. So it was still borrowing from the private sector, which had enormous savings. And in fact, savings of private businesses and even savings of Canadian households are relatively large now. 
and it's the public sector, mm-hmm. especially the federal sector, federal government, that is running the deficits. It's borrowing. And so it's it's uh, it's not really uh, so. The COVID responses have not really been financed by massive increases in the money supply to finance the government spending, but rather that's been uh, by borrowing from the by private borrowing, sector. Yeah. And the private sector is basically saying to the government. I don't have a problem with you borrowing. Here, I'll lend you my money. I'll buy mm-hmm. your treasury bills or, or whatever the case yeah, is. Yeah. So, and, and the government's able to borrow on very favorable rates. So I would say we haven't really had that test yet, okay. uh, of, of, at least in Canada. But, but to that point also about government deficits being so awful, um, the, the money that the government owes is, to, is, is, for the most part, to Canadians, right? So it, it, it isn't, someday you're going to get more money back if you've lent to the government and supposedly, assumingly, you're, you're going to spend that money or you're going to invest it. Uh, although that's been the problem for the last so many years is that businesses haven't been spending, right? They haven't been investing. And no, we- that's right. And in fact, um, it's easy to say, but theoretically, if you wanted to reduce the government deficit, then you'd need to increase or uh, reduce private sector savings. Mm-hmm. If the private sector spent a lot more and was borrow and it had to borrow, then the government would have to spend less. Right. So uh, so exactly as you say, because mm-hmm. uh, reinvestment, especially on the part of Canadian business in, in Canadian businesses, has been relatively low, especially in terms of a share of their uh, after-tax income, mm-hmm. then uh, that leads it to other sectors of the economy mm-hmm. to try to pick up the slack and the government is part of that. Well, Fletcher, I feel like we could go on and on, but I think we're running out of time. Um, I really urge people to, uh, to to read this piece by twos or pick up his book and let's listen to part one of this discussion. I think we've covered a, a lot of ground. Um, and I, I think um, that what I took out of twos's piece is, is that I suppose if there were a political will, we could get out of this, but um, through increased spending and Green New Deal, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe the, the neoliberal mold, we could break the mold. He's not uh, particularly, I think, optimistic that that's happened. And he, he says that despite what he called the unleashed creative energy brought by the crisis, he also notes that an intellectual crisis does not a new era make. No, but it does uh, create space. Mm-hmm. And there's space for politics, there's space for push from the bottom up, and I think uh, that's where my optimism resides. That's great. We'll end that on that optimistic note. Thank you very much, Fletcher. I enjoyed this very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Lynn Fernandez talking to Fletcher Barragher, University of Manitoba economics professor, and that's our show for today.